You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, we come now to our sermon text this morning, which is from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 5 and verses 27 through 39. Um, I know it's been two Sundays since we have looked at Luke chapter 5, but Luke chapter 5 and chapter 6 do seem to form uh, a very specific uh, unit uh, in which it wants to show us uh, not only Jesus' authority, that he has the, the power to do and to say and to command, Uh, but also to show us Jesus' teaching or to show us his his attitude uh, towards others. And so last time we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 through 26, we saw his authority uh, to call disciples, his authority to make people clean, uh, and his authority ultimately to be the one who can forgive sins. And now in the latter half of chapter 5, we come to see now Jesus' attitude towards tax collectors, Uh, towards sinners, uh, and ultimately towards uh, religious worship or fasting. And he concloses with a parable here. And so starting at verse 27, in this call of Levi, hear these words from Holy Scripture. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And then they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable. No one tears from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he will tear them, and the new piece and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So coming to this uh, text this morning, What we see in it is we see uh, really what Jesus is concerned with. And you think of that question, what is the son of man who has come into this world? What is he concerned about? I think Luke paints us this wonderful picture here in chapter 5. And what we see, uh, we see really three things that Luke wants to highlight for us. First, we see the call of Levi or Matthew in verses 22 through 27. But then we see these objections that are brought against Jesus and the way that Jesus must respond uh, in terms of what he has been doing. He needs to defend his actions in verses 30 through 35. And then he closes 
uh, I think rather interestingly, with these three parables in 36 through 38. Well, in the beginning, um, he calls this tax collector in Matthew, sorry, in Levi, <laughs> in Luke. There we go. We are in the Gospel of Luke. Sorry. Uh, in Luke 27 through 29 of chapter 5. And really, the, the question here to be framing this discussion is how does Jesus respond to social outcasts? And if this is how Jesus responds, how are we to respond as his disciples? And so Jesus commands, follow me. And again, think through what chapter 5 has shown us, that when Jesus says something, it immediately happens. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, be clean, and the leper is immediately cleaned. In verse 24, he tells the paralytic man to rise, and immediately the man gets up. When he has this conflict at the beginning of the chapter with this man who is demon-possessed, he immediately tells the demon to be silent, which it becomes, and to come out of him, which happens. In every instance, what Jesus commands happens. And so he commands this tax collector sitting at his tax booth, this man named Levi or Matthew, he commands him to follow him. And I think it's helpful and instructive to think about how the Jews as a whole looked at tax collectors because I think tax collectors today, while maybe not the most popular profession, are not quite as bad as tax collectors were in the time where Jesus was walking the earth. Because you see, tax collectors at this time were viewed as traitors for selling out to the Roman occupiers. They were also viewed as extorters because they earned their, the money they earned to live on was money they made in addition to the taxes they needed to collect. And also, they were in constant contact with Gentiles, making them ceremonially unclean. I mean, you can just imagine a situation today. You can imagine, you know, for instance, a, a Ukrainian citizen going around and forcefully raising funds for the Russian occupiers, right? He would not be the most popular individual at the time. And so, in some sense, you can understand the, the, the Jews and the way they looked at these tax collectors, because not only were they collecting more in order to get rich off of their brothers, but then they were sending that money to the country that was occupying them. And so, this made them very unpopular people, to say the least. And yet, Jesus sees this tax collector and comes to him and says, follow me. And what we have is Levi's twofold response to this. The first in verse 28, Levi leaves everything. He rises immediately and follows Jesus. One commentator noted that unlike the fishermen, who we can see they actually at one point do go back to fishing, Levi here, when he leaves this tax booth, it's very unlikely he could ever come back to this job Again, so once Levi stands and leaves, everything is left behind. He has nothing that he could come back to. But it's this beautiful picture of Christ who calls, and this old life of sin and extortion that Levi would have been involved in is left behind. But the second interesting response that Levi has is that he throws an, a feast. He has a, a feast now in response to what has happened. And a further interesting way in which Luke frames his whole gospel account is that it's actually centered around in the middle about six different feasts. 
And so actually from chapter 5, we have this first feast with a tax collector. And actually all the way in chapter 19, we close off with another feast with a tax collector, with Zacchaeus. And then these six feasts. And also in the middle of this section is that wonderful parable about the lost son, the son who is dead, who is now alive again. And what is the father's response to this? It is to throw a feast. It is to celebrate what has happened. Right? So why a feast? Well, there's something great to be celebrated here. Uh, A sinner has been saved. A, A lost son has been found again. And actually, the, the scriptures really culminate all of redemptive history with a feast. Revelation 19 has this great wedding feast of the Lamb. Evil is defeated. Christ's people have been called, and now set before them is this wonderful feast of celebration. And so the question, why a feast? Well, why not a feast? Why not a time of celebration? I actually also wonder if Levi here recognizes the fact that Jesus calling him to be a disciple is actually a great honor. Because Levi has to know about Jesus' fame. He has to know about the fact that wherever this man goes, miraculous things keep happening. That he has this authority to command these things. Because you'll have to remember too, Jesus didn't call every single person that he walked, that he met to be a disciple. And so for him to call Levi to be a disciple should in some sense be a great honor. And I think that's what Levi is recognizing. Not that he has anything of worth, but rather that Jesus has called him. And so what does he do? He then throws this great party. Luke will later tell us in chapter 15, verse 10, that there is great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner repenting. And so what we see here, something that we'll come back to, is that Jesus' attitude towards the outcasts. Right? He calls sinners to repentance. And Jesus does that precisely because he knows the power of the gospel. He is the son of man who has been sent by the father to preach the kingdom of God and to do so and to demonstrate that. And Jesus also knows that his mission is to come to save not only the lost sheep of Israel, but also all of the lost. And what we see here in Jesus is that he's not stingy with the gospel. I mean, I think of my my own life, and I think many of us could attest to just being stingy with this good news, right? We should actually be a church that welcomes, that proclaims the gospel joyfully, that, that sees people from all walks of life, that the church should not just be one social class. Rather, the church should stretch and be building this new family, this wonderful family of God that transcends nations, right? I'm an American standing here in Britain preaching. (laughs) That it transcends nations, that that once you become a Christian, you have a a new family. I mean, for anyone who's ever traveled overseas, I found that to be incredibly interesting. I remember being in Spain, barely able to communicate, talking to other believers and knowing that there was something there that we shared. And that, that though this Spanish person and I shared nearly nothing, we barely spoke the same, could even communicate together. Yet because we were brothers in Christ, there was something there. 
And so Levi responds, right? He responds with repentance. He leaves everything. But he also responds with celebration. He responds with celebration. I mean, I just think of of how many of you, you know, you can know, maybe remember that time in which you became a Christian, the joy that there was felt in that moment. And now maybe it's been many years since then. And do you remember your first love? Or are you kind of just going through the motions, maybe bored now after many years? We're called to look back and see the joy that Levi had to remember our salvation, to remember the great honor it is that the Lord Jesus Christ called us out of darkness into light to be his. Well, then there's more to this story. Jesus' actions generate a response In verses 30 through 32, we have Jesus attending this party, which is full of tax collectors and sinners. And so the the Pharisees here come up and they see this, and they ask, why why is Jesus, why, Jesus, are you doing this? And why are you encouraging your disciples to do this? The Pharisees made a conscious effort to avoid sinners, people that they believed would pollute them. And actually, in some sense, you, you have to understand and, and empathize with that. The book of Proverbs is, is, is in many ways helping us realize about what wicked company does. What wicked friends would encourage us to do. Proverbs chapter 1 starts, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. So there's some wisdom that Proverbs is trying to remind us of that people who are close to us often have this great influence upon us. And so there's a bit of empathy there that we can have with the Pharisees when they're trying to avoid people they believe would pollute them. I think the problem, as we'll see, is that the Pharisees assumed that they were of a different category than these tax collectors and sinners. As Jesus will say later, I came to call sinners, not righteous. They cannot see their own state, and so because of that, they perceive that they have this righteousness already and that they are above these other people, these tax collectors and sinners. Indeed, Luke has that wonderful parable that happens later in his gospel of the Pharisee and the tax collector coming to the temple, one justified in himself, one finding justification through another, through Jesus Christ. And it's the tax collector that finds mercy that day. So Jesus responds in verses 31 through 32. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's giving this statement of his ministry and a justification for what he's doing. I think the, the way in which Luke is framing a lot of this is that he's, he's walking this line throughout his gospel of saying, this is who Jesus is, this is, who Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing, this is who the Savior of the world is, but then also calling us as his followers to be following after him, to be doing much of the same thing that he is doing. I think the difference comes in here is that Jesus, his holiness is contagious, <laughs> You know, most of us, I think we can, appoint, we can point to areas in our lives in which when we're with others who may be sinning, often we're dragged down to sin. 
rather than bringing sinners up to righteousness. Right? Again, this theme from Proverbs is, is friendship matters. So there may be places, for instance, that it would be unwise for some people to go to evangelize, for instance. You can use your imaginations. So this isn't this, this blanket statement, right? It's to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. Jesus is the one who comes and brings holiness with him. But certainly having said all of that, the reason Jesus is here at this moment is because he understands the gospel, he knows what the gospel is, and he knows that the gospel can change anyone. Even the worst of sinners, says Paul. Actually, even people like you and me. So Jesus has come for sinners. Verse 32 is wonderful good news. Because you think back to Levi, all we know is that he's a tax collector. And you think about this, what criteria... What criteria did Levi meet to be a follower of Jesus? I think Jesus tells us there's just one. He met just one requirement, and that was that he was a sinner. And that he was a sinner. And I think that offers good news to us. We think of Jesus calling us in our own life, right? The requirement is, are you a sinner? And Jesus calls him. But also note, though, that Jesus doesn't affirm Levi's lifestyle. Jesus doesn't say it's okay to continue to extort and rob people so long as you love me. Right? Je Jesus has come to call the sick in order to make them well, the unrighteous sinners in order to make them righteous. He has no, uh, he has no plan to let them remain sick but rather he came to offer repentance, to turn from sin and to bear fruits of repentance, which is what we see in Le Levi's life. In this short little vignette, he leaves everything and then throws this massive feast. There has been a, a drastic and dramatic change that has taken place in Levi's life. Well, then there's this question that arises now with fasting in verses 33 through 35. And it can sound kind of jarring to switch between Jesus mixing with the social outcast, Jesus calling sinners to repentance, to then this question about fasting. But if you note, the, the first question that the Pharisees ask is, why are they eating and drinking? Then the second question they ask is, well, why are they not fasting? Why are they eating and drinking? Why are they not fasting? It sounds as if they were rebuffed with the first question. So they sought to ask another question of Jesus in order to uh, show forth that, that his teaching, if you will, him being a, a rabbi or a, uh, a teacher here was deficient because they, they bring up the fact that John the Baptist, who has come, his disciples fast, the Pharisees and their disciples fast. So what's wrong with you and your disciples? who are eating and drinking and celebrating. I think part of that is that they're misunderstanding the point at which we are in redemptive history. Because John the Baptist and the Pharisees are all looking forward to something that is yet to come. Right? John the Baptist is the one who has come to proclaim a kingdom, to be the herald who comes before the Messiah comes. The Pharisees for all their misguided ways in which they see Jesus, are looking for a messianic kingdom to come. They're looking for something at the end of time when the Messiah would come. And so they're looking forward to this. And the big difference is, is that Jesus has come 
bringing the kingdom of God, bringing true repentance. And because he is here, that means there should be great joy. And that's what Jesus is trying to drive at. I mean, just imagine for a moment the last wedding you have gone to. And imagine when you arrive, uh, the groom is in sackcloth with ashes, right? And there's no food. It is just fasting to be had. You would be very concerned about that couple's marriage if that's the groom's attitude already right before he's entering in. All right, because weddings are supposed to be a joyful time, a time of celebration, a time in which the bride and the groom are so excited about marriage that they're inviting all of these others to come and to celebrate with him, with them. And Jesus, in the same way, is saying, I am here. I am here. I am the, the bridegroom. I am the long-awaited one in which you have hoped for is finally here. All of God's promises have now found their fulfillment in me. And that should be a time where you should be rejoicing. Fasting is an absolutely inappropriate response to what is happening right now. Right? Jesus is here. Miracles are following in his wake. Sins are being forgiven. Freedom is not only being proclaimed, but being accomplished. And that response is to be joy. Levi's response of throwing a party is the exact right response. I mean, think again of Luke 15, the son who was dead, now he is alive. So what do we do? We throw a party. We rejoice. And Jesus says, there will be a time for fasting. There is a time coming in which my disciples will fast and they will continue to fast until there's that wedding feast again. That there will be a time of fasting until there isn't. Right Between Jesus' ascension and when he comes again and brings in this new wedding feast, there will be a time in which we are commanded to fast. I think Jesus is viewing fasting as an ongoing spiritual discipline that we find ourselves in between his first coming and his second coming. He clearly says that there will be a time of fasting, but right now, who I am and me being here means that it's inappropriate to fast. There should be great celebration happening. And so then Jesus, in order to uh, bring this point home, gives these three parables about a new garment, new wine, and this unwillingness in verse uh, 39 to try. This new garment, he speaks of a new garment being cut up in order to patch an old garment. And I remember having a, a ripped knee in uh, the, this area in my jeans when I was younger, and I asked Laura's uh, grandmother to patch it up for me, and I wanted something neat and garish, and it looked like a different patch. She came from a different generation and wanted to make it look like the old thing, so she patched it with a big jean patch instead of the big red patch I wanted. I didn't wear those jeans again. But Jesus is trying to say that's not the way in which you would patch something. You would not cut up a new garment in order to patch an old garment. They'll eventually tear away because one garment has been worn, the other is not. And then he speaks of new wine being put into old wineskins, that rather new wine needs to go into new, stronger wineskins because there's a fermentation process that's going to happen. And old wineskins are just going to break and spoil the wine. And then he, he ends with, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. We have... We have three parables that ultimately are speaking about the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. 
right? Ultimately, the problem that Jesus is talking about is not fasting. Fasting is just one, uh, one small thing that is causing this conflict. The deeper issue is the fact that the Pharisees do not see that the kingdom of God is here. They are stuck in their old ways and their old understanding of Judaism, Right? They, they are not understanding that Jesus is rightly proclaimed from the Old Testament scriptures as the fulfillment of everything. Yet they are stuck in this position and this place clinging to and, and really being unwilling and unwanting Jesus to be there. And you just, uh, again, I try to imagine or even empathize with this, that their hope is built in a Messiah who would come. Now that there's a Messiah here, they don't want him. They'd rather cling to all of these laws and all of these extra things they've added on to Judaism in order to comfortably claim their own righteousness. And so for them, you have fasting and mourning instead of joy. Instead of calling sinners to repentance, you have this so-called fake righteousness. You have this desire for the lame man to keep being lame instead of being able to walk. Like Jesus, as he would say at the Last Supper, this new covenant is here. And Jesus is doing something new. Even if all of this is consistent and being uh, in what the Old Testament was bringing out, Jesus starts his ministry in Luke by quoting Isaiah 61, saying that I am here. And that's the point of the Gospels, to see what God is doing. There's this new and amazing and unparalleled event in human history. And now everything revolves around that, however much we'd want to change A.D. and B.C. to C.E. and out of B.C.E. Right? All of history now revolves and pivots around Jesus Christ. And yet the Pharisees are content with their religion as it stands. They'd be the first to recognize it's not perfect, but it's okay. So we'll cling to that instead of seeing what Jesus is bringing, that the kingdom of God is here, that the Son of Man is here with all authority. The long-awaited bridegroom is here. Truly, something wonderful is here. I mean, in a sense, I think what we see today, Jesus is really taking aim at, at a Christianity, at a cultural Christianity, at a Christianity that doesn't demand a whole lot from you, but also doesn't provide you with that much joy. I mean, many view Christianity as just fire insurance making minimal demands upon your life while providing you probably moderate amount of joy, a very small amount of joy. Right? You think about what the Pharisees were content with, with what they were offered in Jesus Christ. And think about how many of us revert more to Pharisaism than to what biblical Christianity is. Look at the way Levi responds versus the way the Pharisees are responding. I mean, just think about the ways in which we view Christianity. We come on Sunday, we hear the gospel, what happens on Monday? Right? Do we have this Christianity, this closet Christianity that has every bearing upon me, but no bearing upon anyone else? Do we have a dead orthodoxy that has all the right answers, and yet is devoid of any kind of love? Jesus says it this way. In Revelation 2, he speaks to, of all places, he speaks to the church at Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians is the most love-filled letter I have ever read in the New Testament. And yet, these are the words that Jesus says to them. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, 
and are found to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. Think of those words, that this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, this wonderful letter of hearing about who they are, encouraging them in the works that the triune God is doing among them. Fast forward to the book of Revelation where Jesus Christ is saying, I will remove your lampstand because you have forgotten your first love. Is that not what Jesus is driving at in these passages? Where is our first love? Is it in Jesus Christ? Note the way in which Jesus calls us to repentance. Note the way in which he shows this love towards others. Note this attitude that he has towards sinners. And all of this is constantly asking ourselves, have we forgotten our first love? And then do we then go out into this world acting as Jesus acted, loving those whom he loves? And I think these are are tough verses to deal with. Because yes, the Gospels want to point us to Jesus Christ. And they want to to make sure that our work and our worth is found in Jesus Christ, not anything that we bring to God. But also they want to bring out this amazing point that Jesus is a true teacher. That he's leading us and guiding us and we are to emulate the things that he does. We are to be imitators of him. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am imitating Christ. And so let us take these words to heart. Let us not forget our first love. Let us rejoice again at our salvation, at the God of our salvation. But let us also be those who are in prayer, those who are daily repenting, and those who are loving others as Jesus has so loved us. So beloved, let us not forget our first love. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co.